Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Can you believe it? We're all the way up to number 14 in our Football by Numbers series. And today we talk about the jersey number 14 with Joe Ziemba, a football historian who's got plenty to say and plenty of trivia. It's all coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. This is your host, Darren Hayes, and we're podcasting from the Pigpen in Western Pennsylvania to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So with Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff supplying us with the tunes, let's go no huddle through today's football history headlines. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is your bonus version of the podcast today because we have our Football by Numbers series with the number 14s, and we have a special guest, Joe Ziemba of the When Football Was Football. He has wrote the book, and he has the podcast by that same name, and he is covering such good ground. We had him on just a little while ago talking about the, the Ollie Matson trade back in February, and now he's on coming on strong, going to talk about the number 14 jerseys, and here's our presentation with Joe Ziemba. Tonight, we have the special honor once again to welcome Joe Ziemba of the uh, When Football Was Football podcast on the Sports History Network. And uh, Joe, uh, welcome once again to the Pigpen. Darren, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, and I love the new furnishings of the Pigpen here. I'm fitting right in. I'm used to this kind of stuff. So thank you very much. Yeah, just uh, lean against one of those fence posts and we'll (laughs) sit back and uh, talk about the great number 14s in NFL history today. That's our assignment. And uh, we want to find a top 12 because we really have a lot of great uh, players that wore the number 14 in NFL history. And there certainly will uh, enough of number 14s besides a whole bunch of Hall of Famers. There were some other interesting players uh, going back from the start of the NFL till today that have worn that great number. So I think we're going to have a great time uh, dipping into some of the stuff and maybe uncover a little bit of trivia about a couple of these guys that we found out. But oh. always great to share. So, oh, that you got us intrigued now, Joe. <laughs> got us intrigued. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'm just going to go quickly through our Hall of Famers, and we can go in more detail on them in a second since we alluded to them. And this is uh, in alphabetical order. Well, not even alphabetical order. No, no particular order. It's, uh, we have you know Dan Fouts, Y.A. Tittle, Don Hudson, Fred Blitnikoff, Johnny Blood McNally, Otto Graham, and Link Lyman are the uh, Hall of Famers that I uh, looked up on the Pro Football Hall of Fame's website. That's uh, some good players there, some really good quarterbacks. Andrews quite a Sanders. list, yeah, quite a list. Where do we want to start? You want to start talking uh, about these seven gentlemen and uh, their contributions to the NFL? Sure, whichever one you'd like to talk about. Yeah, we'll well, jump in. I, I have one that's uh, particular fond to me because he's uh, right here from my hometown, and that's uh, Freddie Bolitnikoff is from Erie, Pennsylvania. 
Uh, went to Tech Memorial High School, which is probably about a mile from where I'm sitting right here in the pig pen. Uh, and they've since uh, named their football field after him, the Bolitnikoff mm. Field. So Freddie was a, a very interesting character. I, I didn't have the pleasure of watching him play high school football. I was a little bit too young, but I do remember him as a pro. Uh, what, what do you know about Freddie Bolitnikoff? Freddie, I just remember him playing a little bit with the great hands and that he was one of those players who would not step away from anybody. Uh, he was willing to hit and take a hit. Uh, great hands in the middle of the action, uh, kept his head up, was always looking for that extra yard. So uh, I would always consider him kind of a rough and tumble player and someone that if you were looking at, at a player that you like to emulate when you played, he might be one that, uh, that would be of that source. He, he really personified that, uh, that Raiders, uh, you know, aura about him. You know, he was a, he was a true rate Oakland Raider. You know, he was gutsy over the middle, uh, you know, like to talk a little trash. It seems like, you know, things I remember about him uh, didn't really didn't take any baloney out there from anybody. <laughs> the DBs out in the field. He was, he was a tough character. It must have been that Raiders persona. Must have been. You know, Freddie ended up, well, he was a Super Bowl MVP uh, in the late 70s. I'm real, real tough character in there. You know, Florida State Seminole was uh, where he played ball. And um his first two seasons at Florida State, he played on both sides of the ball. And, you know, you don't think of him as a defender, but in his junior year, he uh, made a 99-yard run after he intercepted a pass against Miami uh, in college. So not only a great receiver in the NFL, but a, a, probably could have been a good defender there too. Yeah, I didn't realize that he went both ways, which is uh, amazing, even, even that late, late in terms of away from the 1930s and 40s when – uh, folks did go both ways. Right. Definitely. Um, he ended up having uh, set a single season record uh, with 70 receptions, 1,179 yards and 15 scores in 1964 at uh, FSU. Um, and I know we're getting away a little bit from the NFL, but uh, just, you know, just a remarkable career in college. And they just, you know, kept it right on going in the NFL. Uh, he was drafted in the 1965 AFL draft and uh, stayed with the franchise of Oakland for his entire 14-year pro career. He has 76 touchdowns, 8,974 yards on 589 catches. So pretty good career, Hall of Fame career. <laughs> yes, way impressive. Yes. And uh, who would you like to go to next in our Hall of Famers? Let's see. We have quarterbacks. We, we were talking about receivers. Uh, one of my receivers, and of course, I like the old, old guys, would be uh, Don Hudson of the Green Bay Packers. Oh, they don't get much better than Don Hudson. You know, it was, it was kind of interesting back in the uh, late 50s when they started picking out all decade teams and all time teams that a publication called the uh, Pro Football picked their first all time team and not only named him to the all time team, but named him the top player up until that time, which would have been 37 years. And they were talking about how elusive he was, how fast he was. Hudson, I know, claimed that he ran a 9.8100, which was pretty good there for the early 40s. Definitely. And, uh, one of the defenders was quoted in the article and saying, and his quote was, when you talk about guarding Hudson, you just have to say that all Hudson can do is just beat you. No need to say more. He has the most baffling change of pace I've ever seen. The hardest pass receiver I have ever seen to cover. 
And so with that, of course, he accomplished so much with Green Bay, 11 years with the same team, uh, first jersey ever retired by the Packers, won three NFL titles. And our first little bit of trivia, though, um, before he played his first game with the Packers, the owner of the Washington Redskins kind of said, whatever gave you the idea that this bird-legged Don Hudson is an All-American, the greatest pass receiver in college football, Green Bay will release him before October. George Preston Marshall, the favorite wow. of George House of the Bears. So I, I thought that that would really get a player going. And, and sure enough, I think I, I saw an ar- our article that said Hudson said, yeah, that did it for him. And uh, he was, of course, the NFL's first 1,000-yard receiver, led the league. And uh, I think when he retired in receiving yards, passing or receiving yards, touchdowns when he retired, and then went in the Hall of Fame in 1963. So he was a league leader almost every year he played back then. And I think he really deserves what that one publication gave him in 1957 of the best NFL player of all time until then. And one little sidebar, he, uh, of course, came down to Chicago a couple times a year and played the Bears and the Packers, Bears and the Cardinals. And in 1945, the Cardinals, and you may have heard this story, but uh, Cardinals had a player named Mazzanelli who went into World War II right at the start of it, in fact, even before then. And he was in a prisoner of war camp with the Japanese. For the entire war, he survived the Battle of Bataan. And uh, Mr. Bidwell, the owner of the team, came up to him in the hospital when he came back to Chicago. And he said, you know, Mats, uh, you're still under contract. We expect you to be out there. And here's a guy who went from 210 pounds to about 90 pounds during captivity. But he worked and got back out in the field at the end of the season in 45 and lines up as a defender. And who's he up against but Don Hudson? Oh. And uh, Mats Tonelli said that Hudson looked at him and said, don't worry, kid, we'll take care of you. And I thought that was such a tender story from this great all-pro that he was looking out for one of his brother-in-arms and uh, a great person as well as a great player. So Don Hudson's right up there with my list of uh, top number 14s. Oh, most definitely. Now, I, I dug up a, a little bit of trivia, and again, I go back to his college game. He had he played for Alabama, and you know, in 1934, I mean, think about that era and what they did. It was a, you know, mostly running game. Hudson hauled in six passes in one game for 165 yards and two touchdowns and a 29-13 victory over Stanford in the Rose Bowl. I mean, a big, big stage against a good team in an era where they didn't really put the ball in the air very much. You know, that's, right. that's pretty yeah. impressive. I thought that was a real good uh, character trait to show there that what he was going to do in the NFL, maybe a foreshadowing of sorts. Yeah, and I think that's probably why Curly Lambeau was able to open up his offense for passing, having Don Hudson out there all those years. It certainly made it a little bit easier. Of course, Hudson was a very humble man. And always said, uh, it's not me, it's my quarterback, Cecil Isbell, and uh, his teammates, which was, again, showing the humility of the man as well. Yeah, oh, that, most definitely. Well, you just brought up another name that's on our list, and that's Curly Lambeau is on that list of Hall of Famers. So maybe he is, a- and uh, Curly, of course, goes back to the, to the start of the league, as we all know, or almost the start. Uh, came out of uh, Green Bay and went to Notre Dame for one season, got tonsillitis, uh, never went back to Notre Dame after that first year, but started this team called uh, the Packers. Uh, I think it was the Acme Packers then. I could be wrong, but uh, became the Green Bay Packers in 1919 and 
got in the NFL a couple of years later. He continued to play halfback for another 10 years and was all pro a couple of times uh, from, from that position. And he was actually named to the uh, Pro Football Hall of, Teams, Hall of Fame's All-20s team for his work as a halfback for the Green Bay Packers. He played the old single wing, which is kind of confusing if you catch an old film of it on YouTube or something. Uh, quite effective as a player coach for those 10 years. And then, of course, uh, stayed on as coach and general manager for another, another 30 years until 1949 when he finally left the Packers. But So as a player and a coach, uh, Curly Lambeau, another one of those number four teams who we will always remember. And he was good enough to get a, an entire NFL stadium named after him too. Probably a little That's bit of right. his coaching helped that out too, but uh, still a you know, great, uh, great player, great coach in the NFL. Uh, Sometimes when I, when I give talks, I uh, irritate Packers fans when I said that uh, Lambeau Stadium was the only stadium in the NFL named after a Cardinals coach. <laughs> he did coach the Cardinals for about a year and a half, but uh, I know I'm being facetious. <laughs> uh, imagine that somebody from Chicago irritating somebody from Green Bay. I just can't <laughs> right, exactly. never heard yes. of that before. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, where do we want to go to next here on our list of Hall of Famers with the number 14? No, we still have a lot of quarterbacks to look at, but um, there's one I, I, I'd kind of like to look at a little bit more because he was so unique was Otto Graham. Oh, yes, uh, most definitely. Quarterback out of Northwestern. Uh, went with, uh, with, with Cleveland, of course, in the old American football, all-American football conference uh, where he won four straight titles. Then he won three more titles when they came into the NFL. And uh, he had a remarkable record of 57-13-1 as a quarterback, which I believe is still the highest percentage ever over a career of about 81%. So uh, – when he left the game, he was the NFL career yardage leader and uh, also the yards game for passing attempt. Went in Hall of Fame in 65, but and then coached afterwards. Uh, a little trivia about Otto. He grew up north of Chicago, I think in Waukegan, which is close to Evanston, where he went to Northwestern. And his boyhood hero was the great Jack Benny, who was a TV star uh, around in the early 50s and before that a radio star. And so he played the, the violin and Otto apparently wanted to play the violin. And so he did, which is one of those football players who could do whatever he wanted, I guess. <laughs> a multi-talent renaissance man, even. Yeah, yeah. He it was seems uh, from what I've read of him and I've you know so, what little video I've watched of him, but he seems to be like the the perfect quarterback for for Paul Brown and his uh, uh, innovations of the game of football. It's just you know perfect match timing uh, for those two to get together. Yeah, yeah, and, and they were obviously quite quite successful. And you know back in the time when uh, completion percentages were very low uh, for quarterbacks i mean when i say low low compared today uh, you know Otto Graham had a year where he had uh, almost 65% of his passes were completed which was which was great and uh, he was able to keep up those percentages uh, during throughout his career so he was uh, quite the accurate passer apparently yeah most definitely and i mean just uh you pay tribute to those uh, Cleveland Browns teams. You know, I'm, I, I live in Erie, Pennsylvania. So we're a hundred miles from Cleveland, hundred mm -hmm. miles from Pittsburgh, hundred miles from Buffalo. So, and I'm a Steelers fan. I'm on the Steelers side of the fence. Uh, so it's hard for me to say good things about the Browns, but you can't say <laughs> enough about 
the Browns of those, uh, you know, the AAFC days where they won every single championship of that, that uh, league. And then they came in the NFL and, uh, you know, so much for being an inferior league because they came in and uh, pretty much dominated the, the NFL in their, their early days of the 1950s. Oh, they did. Yes. And Otto Graham was a, a big part of, part of that. Uh, definitely. All right. Where, which direction do we want to go next then? Well, should we stay on corporate? Let's talk about a kicker. Okay. Uh, not in the Hall of Fame, though. All right. So, hey. so we're going we're gonna to bounce away from that and talk about Fred Cox, who uh, spent his entire career with the Vikings 15 years. Um, when, he, when he left the team, he held, uh, I think in the NFL, though, when he retired, he was still the, I think, had second most points scored, but he's still the Viking leader in, in, in scoring and field goals. So uh, he was uh, the thing I liked about him, though, because playing in the in the conference in the Midwest, he did a lot of his kicking outside with horrendous winds, and uh, still quite the effective uh, place kicker. Had a hundred points four times. Um, but the trivia about him is there's two things about Fred that I liked. After football, he became a chiropractor. And so he was one of those guys who actually doubled his salary <laughs> in his post-football life than, than what he made as a kicker. And uh, the second piece of trivia is Fred Cox invented the Nerf football. So we got royalties on that for uh, really? oh. the remainder of his days. So That is interesting. Uh, we've got lots to thank Fred about. And Nerf football is something you can throw at your kid off their head, and they don't even know if you hit them or not, if they misbehave. But, uh, it's, that's a useful uh, tool for the Nerf football. Yeah, most definitely. Now, was that the first product that Nerf came out with? Or was that just one of the, the byproducts of the, you know, I'm trying to think back to my childhood because I grew up in the yeah. 70s and I we definitely had Nerf footballs, but they had like the sponge balls and, you know, now they have like every product known to man, I think. Yeah, yeah. Nerf on it, but uh so he was just associated with the football or the whole, the whole company. Sounds like just the football, but that may have been the predecessor to the other products. I'm not sure. Uh, once he discovered that fabric or uh, the product that's made to use the football, they certainly could use it for other products. You know, where, uh, and this is sort of getting off topic, but <laughs> the Nerf football where we love to use it as kids is on cold, snowy days. You know, you'd go out in the, you know, the street or a parking lot, or if you could find a field that didn't have a, a lot of snow on it, so you could play, you know, because in Erie, we get a lot of snow. Uh, yeah. But uh, just to have, you'd play with a Nerf football because you could use a leather football or the rubber footballs, you know, they were like a, catching a brick. So we do always oh, play yeah, Nerf yeah. with the Nerf footballs and that. <laughs> and of course, you know, the snow's melting a little bit. They soak up that water to become quite heavy too. But uh, mm. that's just an aside. But uh, I, I did well, not know a, that about uh, Mr. Cox. That's that's very interesting. Okay. Um, we want, want to jump back into some quarterbacks in the Hall of Fame? Because we, sure, uh, yeah. we have your some, pick, your turn. <laughs> all right. Well, I would like to talk about a gentleman who was God-given name was Yelbatron Abraham Tittle, Y.A. Tittle. Uh, what, what do you have to say about Y.A. Tittle? Well, you want the trivia first, but we'll, first we'll talk about his long, long career, 17 years. Yes. And uh, just a reliable guy. Uh, again, good completions. He was throwing the ball, say, back in 49 a lot when other quarterbacks weren't. Um, 
had a few problems with interceptions, uh, actually ended his career with more interceptions and touchdown passes. But again, that was not unusual for the era he played in. And of course, he uh, led the Giants to the 63 title game against the Bears and frozen Wrigley Field where the Bears managed to win the game. Uh, very close game, but yeah, elected to the Hall of Fame. But uh, my trivia for him was why Tittle was the very first pro football player to appear on the cover of Sports Illustrated, believe it or not. Really? Oh. Although oh, yeah. I, in my mind, he had this picture of him kind of kneeling on the field. I think it's after the Bears game where there's some blood trickling down from his forehead. You may have seen that. Photo. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do remember seeing a photo like and that. I don't know if that's, if that's the picture or if that's uh, even against the game against the Bears. But, um, yeah, we lost him a couple of years ago at age 90. But what a tough guy, again, he was. And uh, uh, played forever, it seemed like. Yeah, most definitely. He had seven Pro Bowls, a three-time All-Pro, and a league MVP one year. You know, definitely a, a great quarterback and, uh, you know, many Giants fans and uh, 49ers fans remember his uh, great play. So where, which direction do you want to go to next? Well, there's another quarterback who's a little younger than Y.A. Tittle named Dan Fouts. Oh, yes. And uh, Dan, of course, a lot of people know for his broadcasting expertise but he kind of opened up the passing game in the NFL with uh, Don Coriel, the Air Coriel there in San Diego, played his entire career there, all 15 years, uh, led the NFC in passing four straight years, I believe, and was the first to pass for 4,000 yards in one season, and he ended up doing that three consecutive years. So uh, wasn't the quickest quarterback of all time, wasn't the most mobile quarterback of all time, but if he saw a receiver 60 yards away, he'd probably put it right on his fingertips. So uh, a lot of yards, over 43,000 in his career. So uh, he, uh, he, he was it's quite the, uh, I guess, a typical, a typical pro quarterback where he would uh, not be under center, but uh, yeah, he would be under center, but he would get back and he would be able to get rid of that ball. He took a lot of hits because he wasn't that fast, but uh, was able to get rid of the ball and had a pretty high rating for that too. Most definitely. I was kind of surprised looking at his stat that I, I would, if, when I think of Dan Fouts, I think of, you know, almost like a, a Marino-esque type player, you know, where he had a lot of touchdowns and very little interceptions, but he had quite a few more interceptions than I figured. He had 254 touchdowns, 242 interceptions. I, Whoa, I really yeah, that, that is surprising. I thought that ratio was a little bit uh, more one-sided to the touchdowns, if yeah. I would have had to guess. But uh, still a great quarterback and uh, you know, probably uh, deserved to be in a Super Bowl or two. I think uh, the o Oakland Raiders got in his way a few times because they had some yes. pretty good teams during his career, uh, you know, some of the plays like the uh, the holy roller play, you know, that was one to sort oh, of right, yeah, that put a damper on their uh, season that one year. <laughs> so, yeah, but Dan Fouts was a nice player, and he is still quite the the great commentator. I, I enjoy uh, when he uh, oh yes. broadcast games because he does a great job there still. All right, uh, we have a couple more Hall of Famers to talk about. Um, we have uh, one has showed up on a lot of numbers so far. Johnny Blood McNally. Oh, right. And I sure, heard on I'm your sure. last program, you had a great, great session on John McNally. Johnny Blood McNally. <laughs> yeah, have, uh, Mr. Warren Rogan had a couple great stories on how uh, Johnny Blood got his name. Uh, that was kind of an interesting 
thing. Uh, I don't know if you had anything more to say on Johnny Blood or. Well, I enjoyed it. And uh, Warren mentioned the book that came out about him, which is fabulous because the author spent time uh, driving around with Johnny and got firsthand information about him. And I just thought this is so neat because here we are, we're hearing from someone from the past and the interviews took years ago and then the book just came out. So we were able to bridge that time so we can find out what pro football was actually like. And for someone who loves the history of pro football, I thought that was just quite the book and very unique book and very well written. And so I really enjoyed that. Well, I'll have to definitely get a copy of that because that does sound like a good one. I don't have that one in my collection yet. Uh, we have another Hall of Famer that's been mentioned on a couple programs because he wore uh, numerous numbers that are lower than 15 or 14, and that's Link Lyman. I, I still yeah. love that name. That sounds like a football <laughs> name. <laughs> it does. William Roy Lyman. And uh, I think I can see why he switched to Link. But, yeah, 11-year career. Uh, played with a few teams, including Canton and the Chicago Bears. Four-time champion. Can't get much better than that. And a unique thing about Link was he was never on a losing team. Every team he played for. And my little bit of trivia about him is I think he's one of the rare players who actually was an owner of a team. This is back when the twenties, when Canton went to Cleveland and then went back to Canton, but he was uh, in 1925, part of the ownership group that uh, bought the Bulldogs. So ah. he was a, a player owner. And I did not know the same that. season. He went to Frankfurt to finish the season. So kind of odd. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah. And then also in 25, this I did not know, he joined the Bears in 26, but in 25, George Hallis added him, he thought so much of him, to go on those Red Grange tours, that uh, the postseason tours, which really opened pro football up to the masses. We had some like 70,000 people seeing them play in New York. So Link Lyman was uh, part of those tours and then signed with the Bears, as I mentioned, in, uh, in 26. And he was a big guy for the time, 230-some pounds, and his footwork was what got him noticed on the defense. He would kind of shuffle around a little bit, so the offense didn't quite know which way to block him or how to take him out, which made him kind of effective. I think if they kept sacks back in those days, we would find that this guy who was five times all pro probably got in the backfield quite a few times. Uh, I'm sure he must have. <laughs> Sounds like uh, quite the player and quite innovative too. I think he was one credited as one of the first uh, shifting defense alignment read, uh, you know, line up in a, you know, a gap and move to a different gap or over a player. And uh, that confused many of the offense alignment because they were Absolutely. used to you know, having like almost statutory uh, defenses, you know, without moving. So yeah, an interesting character, Link Lyman, just like Johnny Blood was. I can't yeah. get enough of those stories. <laughs> All right. Well, that that covers pretty much our Hall of Famers that we have in there. We have uh, seven of them that are in the Hall of Fame. Um, I and you mentioned uh, Mr. Cox too, who's not in the Hall of Fame as of yet, anyway. Uh, and I don't know if we want to include him, put him automatically on that list, also of our our, our twelve best, or maybe put him as a, a standby member. And we'll come back to him. Yeah, we could come back to him. Although he might might merit a position on that just because of his long career and the successful career. Okay. 
Let, let's put him on pause for a second. Okay. Maybe you can convince me on him. Cause I'm not so sure because we have, we have, we have, I think the seven hall of famers that we just briefly talked about, I think they probably merit uh, getting those first seven spots or seven of the spots yeah. of the 12. So we have uh, five more uh, number 14s to fill our, our roster of uh, 12 players here for our, our top 12, number 14s in history. And um, I don't know if you had any, uh, anybody in particular you wanted to talk about first, but we have some other great quarterbacks and uh, a lot of players to talk about. Yeah. One quarterback, which I think has been overlooked literally is Eddie LeBaron. And he was uh, five foot seven, 160 pounds. He played for a small school and uh, called Pacific because he wasn't highly recruited because of his size and going out of high school into college which is another trivia for the day is that his coach was none other than Amos Alonzo Stagg. So ah. Stagg, after he was let go by the University of Chicago in the 30s, went out to Pacific. And I think he coached till he was nearly 100 years old. So Eddie LeBaron was the coach at Pacific. Uh, no one knew much about him. He was named to the college all-star game in 1950. This was this extravaganza held every August in Chicago where the Chicago Tribune newspaper would host a voting by fans nationwide for their favorite college players who would meet the defending NFL champs. And so LeBaron played for the 1950 All-Stars, and they actually upset the Philadelphia Eagles 17-7. to So he got a little bit of notoriety, but his career was delayed as he served in the Korean War. Uh, when he got out, he was the quarterback for Washington, and he replaced another Hall of Famer, Sammy Baugh. So uh, that was kind of cool uh, that he had the connection not only to Stag but to Sammy Baugh. Oh, most but, definitely. Um, and then in the six, 1960, uh, he was selected as the traded for, I forget, as the first quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. And when you think of his size and the Cowboys were going to build that first team out of this quarterback, Tech Schramm, who uh, said something like he was probably one of the greatest athletes who's ever been around especially for his size. And I don't know what he can't do, Shram said. When he came to us, people were, weren't really familiar with him. They were thinking, geez, he's such a little guy. What are we going to do with him? But by the time they left training camp, Eddie LeBaron had really convinced everyone he was the starting quarterback. He just took over. And, and that's when he got his nickname called the Little General. So uh, <laughs> despite his size, he became an important part of the first, very first Dallas team in 1960. Wow. That, I mean, I didn't realize ever really think about who the first Dallas Cowboys quarterback was, but yeah. uh, you, you revealed another little bit of trivia to us. So that's uh, <laughs> if somebody will win a game show or something at a you know, local bar or something Ooh. someday with that, that answer, you know, that'd be a good one. All right. Uh, where do you, would you like to go to next? You have some other players that you'd like to talk about here? Yeah, there's so many on the list. Why don't you go ahead? Although, uh, you know, we have some quarterbacks left, I believe, to talk about. Uh, All right. Well, we're not in the Hall of Fame. One, one that I'd uh, like to talk about is because, uh, you know, I watched him play quite a bit uh, when I was a kid is uh, Kenny Anderson uh, played with the Bengals and uh, he's gone on to have a great coaching career, too, as an assistant coach and quarterback coach. Uh, but Kenny, I don't think ever gets enough credit for what he was. He played on some some lousy teams, but he was a pretty uh, astute quarterback. Um, I mean, even, even with the, the bad teams he played on, he had a quarterback starting record of 91 and 81 in his career. 
just under 60% completion rate, uh, threw for just under 33,000 yards, 197 touchdowns, 160 interceptions, and had a you know pretty lengthy career. Uh, lasted from 1971 to 1986 with the Bengals. Um, so that's uh, you, you deserve some uh, merit badges just for that, I believe. You know, and a lot of that was uh, under the uh, eye of uh, Paul Brown when he was the owner of the uh, Bengals. Oh, yeah, and I he may have been. Uh, Anderson's coach. I don't know sure, sure how long he coached the Bengals, but uh, yeah. 1971's got to be right in that realm, uh, pretty close, I would bet. Now, what was nice about Ken Anderson coming from the Chicago area, from Batavia, a little north and west of town, but he went to a fairly tiny Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. And again, not really a factory for the NFL. Around that same time was a guy named Lyle Alzado, played for Yankton College in South Dakota. So we had some good players coming from very small schools, but he ended up playing his entire career with Cincinnati. And and in 82, uh, he set a record for pass completion at 70.6%, which stood, I think, until 2009 when Drew Brees finally broke that. And I guess in our discussion tonight, we've seen where a good quarterback might have past completions near 50%. So now Kenny Anderson broke that mark and went to 70% yeah. in 82. Wow. We're, we're covering it all tonight with these four. Teams, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> and getting some good trivia in the, in the mix too. All right. Uh, another quarterback that I, I think is worth mentioning. I don't know if he would make our list or not, uh, but uh and I'm sorry, Kenny Anderson, I'm not sure that he makes our list yet either, but I think maybe we'll have him under consideration too. But another quarterback I like to talk about is uh, Frank Reich. And we know him today as the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts, but uh, yeah. he was a sort of a journeyman quarterback, uh, sort of was in the shadows of Jim Kelly at Buffalo. But, uh, you know, there was a one game in particular I can think of when uh, Kelly was injured that he came in and, uh, really went lights out at least for half of a game. <laughs> and that was that playoff game against uh, the Houston Oilers where the, the bills were just uh, abysmal in the, the first half. And they were down, uh, I, I forget what it was, four or five touchdowns. And uh, Wright came out in the, the third quarter and just uh, really tossed the ball around the yard and got the bills back in the game. And they end up winning that game. And that's what I always remember is Frank Reich as a quarterback. And that's uh probably a good memory to have when he probably yeah. wants us to have. <laughs> well, for a guy who spent 14 years in the NFL, and I think that game was in 92, the big comeback. And uh, it just shows that the teams have to have their, hate to say second string, but the reserve quarterback ready to go at any time. But this guy was a survivor. And obviously because of his success as a coach today, he learned a lot. And he sounds like a person who really absorbed quite a bit. And some uh, decent numbers. He threw for over 6,000 yards uh, during his career. But, yeah, he spent most of the time as, as a backup and had that one shining moment, among others. But that's the one I think you and I both remember. Yeah, I, I definitely, most definitely. Um, another quarterback that I enjoyed watching when you know in the 70s was Steve Grogan, who uh, wore the number 14 for 15 seasons, mostly with the Patriots, uh, all of them with the Patriots, I'm sorry. And uh, he was an interesting character, too. Uh, of course, now he's 
at one time he was probably considered the, the greatest of all Patriots quarterbacks. Now some guy named Brady sort of took that crown, I think. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> You're right. Uh, but, you know, Steve Grogan on some, you know, not the, not the greatest Patriots teams, you know, ended up having a, a good record, 75 and 60 as a starter, 182 touchdowns, 280 interceptions. But that was, like you say, that's sort of common for that era and threw for just under 27,000 yards in his career. Uh, very serviceable quarterback, uh, you know, good quarterback, one you wouldn't mind having on your team. Yeah. Led the league in touchdown passes in uh, 79 with 28. And, of course, then led the team to the Super Bowl, where he unfortunately had to go up against the Chicago Bears, the 85 Bears and the uh, 86 Super Bowl. But, yeah, a, a, a good, good career, a nice, solid career and good numbers and uh, – Again, uh, the interceptions hurt him a little bit again, but uh, overall, yeah, a, a solid quarterback. Right. Uh, why don't you go ahead and take a few here that you'd like to talk about? Let's talk about another guy who might be considered a reserve but wasn't. So I really contradicted myself there, but Craig Morton um, for the Dallas Giants and Denver, uh, 18 seasons. And he spent nine years, I think, with, with Dallas, uh, wearing number 14, mostly uh, with the Dallas Cowboys. Had a couple of Super Bowls, uh, was part of a controversial coaching decision when uh, the coach decided to split time equally between him and Roger Staubach, I believe, in 1977. So um, he was beset by shoulder injuries throughout his career. But one of those guys who still had some pretty good numbers, uh, he threw for almost 28,000 yards during his long career. And he got even better at the end of his career. Ironically, uh, his best year might have been his final full year with Denver when he started 15 games and threw for over 3,000 yards. Uh, had a nice, uh, a, ni a nice year with statistically with a passer rating of over 90%. And he was named to the uh, Broncos ring of ring of honor uh, by the team. And he was the uh, first quarterback to be in the Super Bowl with two different teams to play quarterback. So that's his little trivia bit that we'd like to bring up. But yeah, he was uh, a guy who was steady, maybe not spectacular, but kind of worthy of consideration for our, our top 12 list for the number 14. Most definitely. Now he, he was the quarterback of that Denver team that uh, made it to the, the Super Bowl, uh, the, the orange crush, you know, when Alzado, I believe was there. You know, yeah. So they were pretty much known for their defense and you know, some, some tough running backs, but Craig Morton was their signal caller for that team to make it to that Super Bowl, which, which they lost, but uh, still to be a Super Bowl starting quarterbacks got to be quite the thrill. So yeah, oh, yeah. De definitely a great name to, to bring up in our list for consideration. All right. Uh, where you have, you have some more you'd like to go over. Well, how about another quarterback? Okay. Uh, Vinny Testaverde. Oh yes. 20, 21 seasons in the NFL Heisman trophy winner back in 86, 21 season <laughs> divided among eight teams. So wasn't a journeyman, but he got around the league quite a bit. Uh, had great numbers, threw the ball for over 46,000 yards. But on the negative side, his win-loss percentage was not too good, about 42%. So 
when he left the league, he was uh, in the top 10 career passing and uh, yardage, touchdowns, completions, but never got on a really good team. A two-time Pro Bowl player. And he was beset by uh, interceptions as well. He had 275 touchdowns, but 267 interceptions. So uh, threw the ball quite a bit. One time threw for almost 600 times in one season back in 2000. Uh, but again, those interceptions seemed to catch up with him throughout his career. Uh, most definitely. Yeah, he he had uh, all the potential in the world, but uh, probably some of those uh, early Tampa Bay teams he played on uh, – we're not the best for a quarterback to, to learn the ropes, <laughs> right. I don't think. So <laughs> you're running for your life a little bit down there, I think, in those that era of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, but, yeah, you're definitely uh, worth mentioning him for uh, consideration in our top 12. Well, what do you think? Do you have any more to talk about, or should we start? Uh... Yeah, we can go through. I had one more, and the reason oh, okay. I, I selected another kicker was Ray Wershing. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, I believe you did. And uh, won two Super Bowls, and he was an Austrian-born kicker. Uh, I think he still holds a 49ers record for points, field goals, and extra points. He had an odd, odd uh, preparation for his kicks. He would come in from the sideline. He would stare at the ground, stare at the ground, stare at the ground until he kicked the ball. Where you'll see kickers today, they'll stare, look at the goalposts, movement with their arms, line it up, watch their feet. He never looked up. I mean, he was, he was quite the successful kicker. Scored quite a few points in his career. And uh, I don't know if he'll be in our top 12, but. For number 14, uh, he was around for, for a while, and uh, I, I enjoyed the story reading about him because of his very unusual method of getting ready to kick. <laughs> yeah, he, I remember him doing that, too, now that you mentioned that. But I, uh, definitely, I guess he knew where the goalpost was. It didn't move, yes. so he didn't have to study where it was. But, uh, yeah, definitely a good one to bring up. Okay, well, let's uh, just review here who are our uh, top um, ones we've said are already in the list. And we're, those are our Hall of Famers, uh, Dan Fouts, Y.A. Tittle, Don Hudson, Fred Bolitnikoff, Johnny Blood McNally, Otto Graham, Link Lyman, and Curly Lambeau. We have those on our list. So now we have five more that we need to choose from and ones that we've put sort of on standby for that list. Uh, we got to pick five of them is uh, Kenny Anderson, uh, Frank Reich, Steve Grogan, um, Fred Cox, Eddie LeBaron, Craig Morton, Vinny Testaverde, and who did we just talk about? I just missed my mark oh, here. Ray Wershing. Ray Wershing. Ray Wershing was our, our final. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm almost thinking, you know, looking at that list, that I think probably – Kenny Anderson might be the tops of that, that list that uh, be maybe the first one I would lean towards uh, getting into our list of 12. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Mark, I'd Kenny probably back. take great Wershing off. Okay. And we got to choose four more players. And actually this is getting a, uh, I don't know if I'd take Wershing off. No. Okay. I mean, he, uh, 
he might have an advantage over a couple of our quarterbacks that we mentioned <laughs> at the end here. Um, he did have a long, long, and successful career with the 49ers. I, I think that uh, you convinced me a little bit because I didn't have him on my initial list coming into this conversation, but Eddie LeBaron and Fred Cox, I think you convinced me on both of those that uh, they should be, be on our list. Yeah, I like both of them. Uh, they both were nice, long careers, both consistent, both winners. And no matter where they went, they were able to be uh, constant contributors to their teams. Okay, so I think uh, that fills up two more spots. So we have two more and uh, to, to pick. And I guess sort of our candidates that, we have, that we've mentioned that are left are uh, Frank Reich, Steve Grogan, uh, Craig Morton, Vinny Testaverde, and Ray Wershing. I'm going to say uh, maybe Craig Morton because of those, those two Super Bowls and especially yes. being a starter in one of them. And, uh, you know, when you're vying for playing time with the great Roger Staubach, uh, that gives you some credibility there, too. So I, I would say Craig Morton deserves to be there. And I think because uh, if he didn't get injured, he still might be the uh, Dallas quarterback. Oh, yeah, it could be. He could have had like a 40-some-year a career, 50, yeah. whatever it was. <laughs> but, okay, now if we had a drum set here, we could play a, you know, a little timpani, the – for our final selection here, you know, just to build yeah, some yeah. drama here. I don't know. I, I'm I'm leaning towards your your Ray Wershing pick. Yeah, yeah. Even over the quarterbacks because um, mm-hmm. you know Frank Reich really didn't have the the numbers, didn't have the playing time. Grogan yeah. had some some playing time, but didn't have that great success. I'm I'm sort of torn between Wershing and Grogan to tell you the truth. Yeah, I don't know what your opinion is. Yeah. Um... Both were solid. Uh, Wershing probably scored more. Uh, <laughs> maybe and uh, be the only Austrian on the list too. So, uh. all right, well, let's let's go with Wershing then as our our twelfth greatest player that wore the number fourteen in NFL history. All right. So, wow, that is quite a list, and that was uh, quite a job and some great stories. And gosh, we really appreciate you being on, Joe. Uh, what do you have uh, coming up maybe on the uh, When Football Was Football podcast or maybe a, a recent podcast that listeners could go to and, and check out? Oh, sure. Yeah, if uh, the, the podcast that's running right now, and I believe by the time our show will air here, will still be an episode on why the Chicago Cardinals left Chicago back in March of 1960. And it's been quite controversial, and it's still a tender topic among people who live on the south side of Chicago, believe it or not. And people who refuse to uh, watch the Bears because they still think that hell has kicked them out. And this was 61 years ago. <laughs> but uh, we try to go behind the scenes to find out what really happened. And uh, so that, that I think uh, folks might enjoy that one. So that's, that's running now on um, – the History Sports Network, Sports History Network, excuse me, History Sports Network. Did I say so that sport, right? Sorry, so sport, sports History Network. You, you got it. Sports you got it. You got the Network. words there. Yeah, you see, you get an old guy in here. And we, so <laughs> but I that, apologize. <laughs> I listened to that podcast the other day, and I'm not going to be a spoiler for anybody that wants to go listen to it, because that's definitely something you should do. As soon as you get done here, you jump over to Sports History Network and go to Joe's page and uh, listen to that great podcast. It's at the top of his list right now, and uh, he'll be – by the time this airs, he'll be having another one coming up in a couple of days. So, you know, don't worry. But uh, 
just a, you know, just a little tease on that. There were some broken promises uh, in that whole episode with the Cardinals leaving. That, that was kind of a rather interesting point to your, your stories, but I don't want to yes. say any more. <laughs> so we hope people enjoy it. And our next episode will, will take us all the way back to your early 20s and the first time the Green Bay Packers came to the big city of Chicago. And it's oh. uh, more about the fans than it is about the game itself. So uh, that's that's one we're looking forward to, to sharing with everyone. Well, we'll definitely look forward to that. Um, again, Joe, we really appreciate your time. And I think we're going to have you here a, a few more numbers from now. Uh, you're, I think we have you slotted for uh, coming up for the number 18s. Uh, so we'll be talking to you again here real soon, probably in a week after this episode airs. Uh, have you on for 18s again, and uh, you can't get enough Joe Ziemba on our, our footballs by numbers uh, series we have going on the Pigskin Dispatch. So, Joe, once again, thank you very much for your time and your sharing and your great stories uh, and your trivia. That's just, <laughs> just incredible. We can't get enough of those. So thank you very much, Joe. Darren, thank you so much. We look forward to when we can talk again on the Sports History Network. So, yeah, got it right. <laughs> there you go. I'll make sure Arnie hears that one. Thanks, All Joe. All right. Wow, that was a great talk with Josie Emba on those number 14 jerseys. And what a bunch of great athletes and legends of the game we got to discuss today. We hope you enjoyed it. You can check us out at pigskindispatch.com and look at our Football by Numbers series. You'll see all the other podcasts that we have there on the Football by Numbers if you want to catch up, your favorite podcast provider. and Or just keep checking every other day because we're going to do this about four times a week all the way till we get to 99, which should take us way into the summer, probably in August or so, right before the football season starts so if you disagree with anything we said today or you have an opinion one way or the other we did a good job bad job we missed somebody please email us at pigskindispatch at gmail.com and we will try to do an investigation and make it up on a future broadcast or podcast uh, to, to correct any errors that we made because there are a lot of names out there and we could have missed one that you feel uh, deserves to be in that uh, top, those top spots of the number 14s. So till tomorrow, everybody, have a great gridiron day. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football, 
Through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians, you'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.